Mark chapter 3. We're in our series called The Marks of Jesus. We're just going through the gospel of Mark. And it looks like I'm kind of doing two messages for each uh, chapter. So I'm going to read Mark chapter 3, verse 7, all the way to the end in verse 35. But Mark chapter 3, verse 7 through 35. Jesus withdrew with his disciples to the sea, and a great crowd followed from Galilee and Judea and Jerusalem and Edomia and from beyond the Jordan and from around Tyre and Sidon. When the great crowd heard what he was doing, they came to him, and he told his disciples to have a boat ready for him because of the crowd, lest they crush him. For he had healed many so that all who had diseases pressed around him to touch him. And whenever the unclean spirits saw him, they fell down before him and cried out, You are the Son of God. And he strictly ordered them not to make him known. And he went up on the mountain and called to him those whom he desired. And they came to him, and he appointed twelve, whom he also named apostles, so that they might be with him and and he might send them out to preach and have authority to cast out demons. He appointed the twelve, Simon, to whom he gave the name Peter, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, the brother of James, to whom he gave the name Borginus, that is, sons of thunder, Andrew and Philip and Bartholomew and Matthew and Thomas, and James, the son of Alphaeus and Thaddeus and Simon the zealot, and Judas Iscariot, who betrayed him. Then he went home, and the crowd gathered again, so that they could not even eat. And when his family heard it, they went out to seize him, for they were saying, He's out of his mind. And the scribes who came down from Jerusalem were saying, He is possessed by Beelzebub, and by the prince of demons he casts out the demons. And he called them to him, and he said to them in parables, How can Satan cast out Satan? If a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. And if a house is divided against itself, that house will not be able to stand. And if Satan has risen up against himself and is divided, he cannot stand, but is coming to an end. But no one can enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man, then indeed he may plunder his house. Truly I say to you, all sins will be forgiven the children of man and whatever blasphemies they utter. But whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness, but is guilty of an eternal sin. For they were saying he has an unclean spirit. And his mother and his brothers came, and standing outside, they sent to him and called him. And a crowd was sitting around him, and they said to him, Your mother and your brothers are outside seeking you. And he answered them, Who are my mother and my brothers? And looking about At those who sat around him, he said, Here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of God, he is my brother and sister and mother. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the truth of it. Lord, I pray that you would just, right now, just remove every distraction away from us. You would just teach us from your word. You would clarify things for us. From your word, we'd see Jesus. Lord, I pray every word in my mouth and every the meditations of our hearts will be acceptable to you. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Can you clarify that? Which is probably what a lot of people 
who ran the Milwaukee Marathon the last two years, have said when they heard that for two years in a row they measured the distance wrong. Two years ago they made it too long, and then this year they made it too short. And all these people that run these marathons are hoping that if you run these types of marathons, you'll be able to run in the Boston Marathon. But if you don't run a proper sanctioned race, you don't get to go to to run in Boston, which is the premier marathon. So all these people who thought that they were running in the Milwaukee Marathon the last two years to find out, hoping to go to Boston, got a phone call and said, "Uh, sorry, but we measured wrong, and you're not going to be able to go. It's You're disqualified. You can't make it to Boston. I'm sure the phrase, excuse me, can you clarify that? And plenty of other words came out of their mouth when they heard that. Being unclear about the distance of a race can be devastating. But being unclear about Jesus and his mission leads to missing out completely on Jesus. That's why our verse of the month, 1 John 5, says that 20, that's not the way it has to be for us. It says He has given us understanding so that we may know Him who is true. We can be very clear about who Jesus is. And if we're not clear, and if you're not clear about who Jesus is, the results of that are devastating to life. But the more clear we are about Jesus, the more clear we are about who He is, the more compelled we're going to be to grow in our faith, the more consistent we're going to be in our faith, and the more courageous we're going to be in sharing our faith. Mark's Gospel, which was the first Gospel that was written, is all about answering the question, who is Jesus? That's all he's answering. The first eight chapters, he's just saying, this is who Jesus is. The question is, who is Jesus? And he's trying to answer this question. And in Mark chapter 3, I think he clarifies even more who he is to the people. And so this morning, we're going to look at how Jesus clarifies who the crushing crowd is. We're going to see who, how Jesus clarifies his competence and how Jesus clarifies his true companions. Verses 7 through 12 of Mark chapter 3. Mark has been telling this quick paced story about here. This is who Jesus is. Mark didn't see Jesus, but he hung out with Peter and he's probably writing down everything that Peter said about Jesus and just writing it down. It's a quick, fast paced gospel. And he's been saying a lot of things in his gospel, and it was written so that it probably could be read out loud. You could read the gospel of Mark in about an hour and a half. And I would just say the way to know Jesus is keep reading the gospels. If you really want to know who Jesus is, then look and read and see Jesus with a thoughtful reading of the gospels. But then we get to these verses, and all this action that he has been giving, Mark kind of slows down for a moment and just gives this summary of what's been happening with Jesus. He says, at this point, Jesus has become extremely popular. I mean, people are all over the place looking for him. They're trying to find him. And so much so that Jesus left Galilee and he goes to the side of the, he withdrew with his disciples to the sea and a great crowd of people. They followed him all the way to the Sea of Galilee, and they just they just kept coming. And who is this 
crowd of people that Jesus was with. They, they were crushing him so much that he said, hey, get a boat ready because if I, if, if I stick around here any longer, they're going to kill me. It's that many people. He's unbelievably popular. These are all the people that Jesus came for. All these people that are crushing Jesus or wanting to be with Jesus, these are the people that Jesus came for. Jesus, okay, they're, they're filled with people who are sick and with diseases and they need to be healed. They are hurting people. And Jesus came for hurting people. People want to be healed. Even today, people are looking for somebody to show them a direction. So how can I figure out life and be healed? And all the people that are coming to Jesus are hurting people with all kinds of diseases. Jesus came for hurting people and Jesus came not only for hurting people, all these demonic, possessed people who have no control over their themselves anymore. They're, they're absolutely helpless. And that's who Jesus came for. Jesus has come for hurting people, and he came for helpless people. Which is good news for us. If you're hurting, or if you feel... Helpless, but the other thing we should notice is this group of people that came, he says they, they, they came from all over the place. It wasn't just Jewish people that were coming to Jesus. It was people from Jewish areas, and it was people from Gentile areas, and it was people from mixed areas of Jews and Gentiles. All over the region, people were coming to get around Jesus. Because Jesus come, has come for hurting people, he's come for helpless people, and he's come for all people, not just white people. He's come for every tribe, every tongue, every nation. And Jesus came for all of them. And he also came for hoodwinked people. Hoodwinked means deceived, tricked, duped. And, and that's what all these people, says. these people have been possessed by demons. And they have spent their life believing all these false Teachings And Jesus says, that's the people that I have come for. Confused, helpless, hurting people who are trying to figure out life. Russell Brandt is an English comedian, actor, very unique individual. He just wrote a book on recovery. And he's come out in the last couple years being a person who's, who's not a follower of Christ, he believes in a God, but he's come out recently and talked about the dangers of pornography and how his addiction to pornography was destroying his life and, and bringing that outside of a religious uh, mode. But he just wrote a book recently on recovery and recovering from recovery. And this is what he says in his book. He says, that just came out this, this month actually, he says, there, these are secular times. I just went to see a priest with my girlfriend to discuss getting married in his church, and God wasn't mentioned. As if doing so might cause embarrassment. And I feel some of the same tensions when writing. It's not like the atheists have all the best tunes. Though some people who I really admire are devout atheists, but it is the time we live in, the mechanical dome that umbrellas us from the eternal, that causes me consternation. The unwillingness to open our hearts to the mystery. Even a sentence like open our hearts to a mystery makes me feel a bit queasy with its sincerity. 
but nothing has given me a stronger sense of the greater unknowable than listening to scientists and some spirituals, others not, confessing to the limitations of understanding being through material analysis. I feel there is some other power at work here. I feel, too, that in my journey to freedom from active addiction, undertaken basically for selfish reasons, I have inadvertently been connected to this power. I also believe that anyone can do it. That is what is at the heart of this book, that addiction, however severe or mild, is a sincere attempt to address a real problem, the lack of fulfillment to which the material world cannot cater. Therefore, the solution to this problem is a spiritual connection. This is not my idea. He's not a follower of Jesus Christ, but he is an honest skeptic, searcher, trying to figure out how come I feel like I've been hoodwinked in life. That I can't figure out the way it's supposed to go. That I I struggle through addictions and the things I think are going to satisfy me cause me more pain. How come I can't figure out life like this? That's who Jesus came for. All these crushing people who are helpless and hurting and people like Russell Brandt and people like David Letterman who just in his 70s, just came out this past week and said that, you know what? All the energy and all the time that I put into my late night TV show for years, I'm not that man anymore and I don't even really know why I did it. Why did I put so much effort into it? And it's not that he's not un- uh, he's not satisfied and happy with what his work is, but it didn't absolutely fulfill him the way he had wanted. Pew Research came out with an article this week that said that there is a group of people who believe that you don't have to have a God view to be a moral type of person or have meaning in your life. And more and more people are thinking, hey, you don't need religion, you don't need God to have a sense of meaning in life. And even though Ecclesiastes says that life is meaningful, meaningless in many ways, and we know that, it is not true that people aren't able to have some meaning in life. It's, it's not that people live meaningless lives, but that much of their lives has no eternal meaning. That's the problem. People live lives filled with great meaning. They can do wonderful things. They do a lot of good things but they can put all their effort into that. And like David Letterman say, you know what? I'm not even that man anymore. I don't even know why I did all that to put so much worry and concern into that. It was meaningful. It entertained lots of people, but it didn't have eternal meaning. And that's what people are looking for. There's a sense of lostness. And Jesus came for those kinds of people, but he didn't let those kinds of people set his agenda. The the demons would yell out at Jesus, Hey, you are the Son of God. And Jesus would not let him speak. Because Jesus had great authority over them because it was the wrong time and it was the wrong tone. He didn't want Satan's not going to be yelling out, you're the Son of Man, so people would turn to Jesus. Jesus cut them off because Satan is the great deceiver who lets people believe that they can live life how they want and that we can live life how we want and be pleased with it and be satisfied. And more and more people who have had everything that the world has to offer are coming back and saying, there's nothing to it. There's a very well-known national country musician who just this past week, talking to a pastor friend I know who he helps 
in that work down in Nashville. And he asked her, he goes, what's it like to be you? What's it like to be you on the stage? And all these people in the theater listen to you. And she says, can I be honest with you? She goes, yeah. She goes, it's, it's, I'm the loneliest person in the world. She's got everything. But there is not a sense of eternal meaning, all those things. And Jesus came for that. Jesus came for that crowd. And if you are helpless, if you are hurting, and you at times feel like, I've been hoodwinked here. I feel like I've been lied to about life. Jesus came for you, he says. He clarifies who this crowd is. He, he came for that. But he didn't let them set the agenda. And he called out some of his disciples. He took them up to the mountain and he, and he summoned 12 of them to be his disciples and to spread his message. And then as he, they were coming back down in verse 20, Jesus has to clarify something else. As he comes back down, the, the crowd is still crushing him. And they, they, they can't even eat. And his family heard about it and they went to seize Jesus and they said he's out of his mind. One commentator said those are the 28 words bristle with difficulties. How can it be that Jesus' family, people he grew up with, him, his mom, his brothers and sisters, Mark chapter 6, so they had a brother named James, Joseph, Judas, Simon, he had sisters. They, they heard all that Jesus was doing. They, they saw the crowds crushing him. They realized that he couldn't, uh, they, they couldn't, they went, they, they heard all this news about what Jesus was doing, how he was healing people and delivering people from demonic activity. And, and for some reason, in their heads, they didn't think, hey, this is a good thing. Jesus is the most popular person in the world. He, he's our brother. Let's post it on Facebook. You know, 12 demons left out today. This is my brother right here. They didn't Twitter it. They didn't, they didn't Twitter it. They didn't tweet it, sorry. Uh, they didn't tweet it out. They were not amused at this. They were embarrassed by Jesus, actually. They thought Jesus had lost his mind, that he was crazy. They weren't proud of this. And so they wanted to go and rescue him from there. They wanted to snatch him out of it. And that's bad, but it's not as bad as what the religious leaders of Jerusalem did. And when Mark wrote it, he, he sandwiched these two stories together. He talks about his family, and he talks about the religious leaders, and then he brings up his family again at the end. And Jesus has to clarify who he is. His family thought he was deranged, that he was insane. And then the religious leaders from Jerusalem came down and they thought he was demonic. Jesus, when he was 12 years old, went to the temple in Jerusalem and sat down with some of these religious leaders and was talking about them and, and talking about spiritual things with them. And it, Remember that? And these religious leaders thought they were they're amazed at this. They're amazed at his wisdom. Maybe some of those same religious leaders, Jesus was in his 30s, about 12 years later, were the ones in Jerusalem that had been following Judaism. They, they had marked Jesus. They're like, I'm, I'm going to get him on my team. That young guy, he's got some talent and some potential. And they maybe watched his life. 
And all of a sudden they, they heard his popularity and how he was casting out demons and, and talking about repentance and the kingdom of God. And it was a different message and they were going to lose their authority and they didn't like it. And so they had said, you know what? We are going to squash him and we're going to crush him. So they came up with this delegation of leaders from Jerusalem. And they said, he's not out of his mind. He's demonic. And Jesus hears them discussing this, and he calls them to himself. He deals out with it head on, and he gives them two parables. And first of all, he says, can Satan cast out Satan? That doesn't even make sense, Jesus says. That, that's totally illogical, that no house divided is going to stand. No country that has a civil war is going to survive. They're not going to get stronger that way. So why would Satan want to cast out Satan? It's it's not a logical illustration. And then Jesus goes on to say, tells them another illustration of a strong man in his house. If you're going to bind a strong man in his house, No one can enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man. Then indeed he may plunder his house. And they knew what Jesus was talking about. They had heard Jesus' story. They'd watched him. They'd seen him cast out these demons. And they realized and they knew that Jesus was saying that the strong man is Satan. And there's a new person here. It's Jesus who's binding strong man. And he's defeating the purposes of the evil one and of evil. And that God's not going to be stopped. The kingdom of God has come. Satan ultimately is going to be powerless. And right now Jesus was showing them he's already powerless. Because I can stop his activity. I can squelch him right now. I can cast out demons. He has lost his power and it's not going to change. Satan is going to get crushed and Jesus is going to reign. Which is why it says in the great the song, In Christ alone, no guilt in life, no fear in death. This is the power of Christ in me. From life's first cry till final breath, Jesus commands my destiny. No power of hell, no scheme of man can ever pluck me from his hand till he returns and calls me home here in the power of Christ. You should see some great hope in those verses. Jesus is saying, I, I, I've come. The kingdom of God has erupted on the earth and I'm already binding the strong man. And it's only going to get more devastating for him. And they knew this. And they said, he's crazy. And they tried to make him sound incompetent. And Jesus clarified his competence. And Jesus went one step further. And he said, truly I tr- say to you, if someone blasphemes against the Holy Spirit, there that's a sin that can't be forgiven. And he's saying this to these religious leaders who knew who Jesus was. They'd watched his life. They'd seen his works. They knew that Satan wouldn't cast out Satan. But they deliberately chose to harden their hearts to who Jesus was. And Jesus warned them, every sin can be forgiven, but the sin against the Holy Spirit can't be forgiven. This deliberate rejection of who Jesus is. There's a lot of people, Christians, 
who fear. Did, did I commit the sin of the Holy Spirit? Have I, have I sinned against the Holy Spirit? It, it's not one specific sin. The truth is, if you're worried that you committed the sin against the Holy Spirit, you haven't committed the sin against the Holy Spirit. The sin against the Holy Spirit that can't be forgiven is the purposeful rejection of Jesus Christ. So when you hear and you've heard of Jesus and you know in your head, that's true. I want that to be true. I wish I, I, that's true. I, I see that that's true. And then you say, no, I, I'm going to reject Jesus. There's no, there's no forgiveness for that. Because that's a deliberate rejection. But if you're a Christian or a Christian teenager and you became a Christian when you were younger and then you looked at some pornography and you think, oh no, I can never be forgiven. That's not what that means. If you fear that you have committed that sin, and many Christians struggle with it at times, you haven't. You can find repentance in that it's a warning to people who have rejected Jesus and are refusing to accept the truth that they know. And Jesus clarifies that he's not insane. He's not, not demonic. He is absolutely competent. And then it, Jesus clarifies his true companions. His, his mothers and his brothers come back and they're standing outside. And Jesus has been all through this up to this point saying there are insiders and there are outsiders. And in chapter 4, it's even going to be more about the insiders and the outsiders. Who is in the inside and who is in the outside? And it says his mother and his brothers came standing outside and they, they sent him and said, hey, we want to get in. Your family's outside. And Jesus looks around the table. He's Sinners that have come, the hurting, the helpless, the hoodwinked, who have bought in and they want to be around Jesus. And Jesus says, who are my brothers and my brothers? The ones who do the will of God are my brothers and my sisters. When we read Mark, we're not reading it as strangers from outside the text. When you're reading the Gospel of Mark, you're reading it as the Word of God being spoken to you. This is Jesus speaking to you. And Jesus is still calling. and He's asking, and He wants to clarify, hey, are you on the inside or are you on the outside? Are you my true companion? Are you my real family? The way you know if you're my real family is that I've called you, you've seen who I am, I've called you to myself, you have repented, and turned and seen me, and, in, and you're not disinterested in me, but you see me as the divine Son of God. You see that I'm not a lunatic, and I'm not a liar, but I am who I say I am. I am the Son of God. I'm the Lord of the universe. You see it that way? I heard someone say this, and I think it's true. If you were to go around in our area, our 34 quarter, and say, hey, what do you think about Jesus? Do you think he's a liar? And a lot of people would say, no, I don't think he's a liar. <laughs> you think he's a lunatic? No, I don't think he's a lunatic. He's done all kinds of great things. I mean, look at all these great great these stories and that are helpful and they're moral accounts of our life and it's good information. No, he's not a lunatic. And, and he's, he's probably not a liar. My, 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 my mom loves Jesus, so I, I don't think my mom would love a liar. Uh, many people would have that. Then who's Jesus? He has to be Lord. C.S. Lewis said, I am 
a number of years ago, he wrote, I'm trying to, here to prevent anyone saying the really foolish thing that people often say about Jesus Christ. Saying, I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept his claim to God. That is the one thing we must not say. A man who was merely a man and said the, th said the sort of things Jesus said would not be a good moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on the level with the man who says he's a poached egg, or else he would be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the Son of God, or else a madman or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool, you can spit at him and kill him as a demon, or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He has not left that open to us. He did not intend to. Jesus' whole point in Mark chapter 3 is clarifying that I am the way, the truth, and the life. And anyone that comes to God must believe that I am. I'm not a lunatic. I'm not a liar. But I am the Lord of the universe. I mean, calling people to myself. And the people who do His will are His true family. Who's Jesus to you? Are you clear on who Jesus is to you? If Jesus is just a good guy to you, Jesus wants you to see him as more to that. And if you see Jesus for who he is, does he have full claim of your life? And are you doing the will of God? This morning I would just encourage us to clarify in your heart, mind, and will who Jesus Christ is and do the will of God.
Is my 